You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here at Redeemer. I have the privilege of leading us in preaching and vision as a church. And man, um, what a text that we have today. I am excited to wade through it with you. Uh, before we get back into the text, I want to tell you about a couple of things that are coming up uh, that are important. First of all, um, next Sunday, uh, following our, our 1045 a.m. gathering, we're having our next intro lunch. Uh, what is the intro launch? I'm glad you asked. Uh, it is, um, it's for you if you are newer to Redeemer. So if you want to learn more about who we are as a church, learn more about our story, uh, meet our staff and our leaders, um, ask questions about our doctrine, uh, any of those kinds of things, this class is for you. We'll provide lunch and childcare. It lasts about an hour and a half. And we just kind of pop the hood of our church and let you look around and ask questions. And we hope that it will lead you to taking the right next steps toward becoming more meaningfully involved in our church. So that's next Sunday right after the 10.45 a.m. gathering. If you're an early bird person, you can come early, you can go run some errands, and then you can come back uh, for that lunch. We just need you to register. You could do that online on our app, or you can stop by the Connect table out in the lobby, and you can sign up there. Second thing I want to tell you about is uh, February the 11th, we're having a partner meeting. So if you are a, a committed partner here at Redeemer, just mark that on your calendar. Again, it's right after the 1045 a.m. gathering. We're going to share with you some updates on the year, give some a direction about some key initiatives, give a financial update, all that fun kind of housekeeping stuff. I promise it's going to be riveting. You don't want to miss it. Uh, partner meeting, <clears throat> February the 11th. Okay. If you have a Bible with you, please meet me in Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're in a series where we're making our way verse by verse through what some call the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, Romans at chapter 8, I don't know if this has been your experience, but it's been mine as I've been soaking in Romans 8. It, so far, it's been like God has just like backed up this dump truck full of grace and just like unloaded it uh, on my heart and on my life. And I hope that that has been your experience as well. So far in our study of Romans 8, we've discovered some incredible Christian doctrines. We looked week one at the doctrine of justification, Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we looked uh, at Romans 8, 10 through 11, and we saw this beautiful doctrine of union and union with Christ, that not only are we in Christ, but Christ is within us by the power of his Holy Spirit. His indwelling spirit is within us. We're united with Christ uh, through the Holy Spirit. We looked last week at sanctification in Romans 8, 12 through 13, that this reality that we are to be putting to death our sin with the help of the Holy Spirit so that we can live the abundant life that Christ has called us to. And then finally, we saw a snapshot and a picture of our adoption, the doctrine of adoption, that God calls us his beloved children and so we are because of what Jesus has done for us. And today, in verses 17 through 23, we come to the doctrine of glorification. I want to just give you a definition up front, a working definition of glorification. And then as we work through the text, I hope that you'll see it more clearly. This comes from Michael Bird. He's a New Testament scholar. He says this. He says, glorification represents the culmination of our salvation. The culmination of our salvation. So if justification means being saved from the penalty of sin at the cross, if justification means, I'm sorry, if sanctification means being gradually freed from the power of sin, then glorification means being freed from the presence of sin 
full and final freedom from the presence of sin in our bodies and in our physical world. Um, that's good news. That's good news. Glorification, the doctrine of glorification, is about what the future holds for those who are in Christ. In other words, like where is this all going? Where is Christ taking us? That's what the doctrine of glorification teaches us. That's what this text tells us. I, I want to ask you, how many of you would say you're like future thinking people? How many of you? you? You can raise your hand. You're like the people that are always thinking ahead, kind of always making a plan. Yeah, some of you are future oriented people. You don't think much about the past. The present is just kind of time to strategize for the future. That's kind of how you are. And here's what you future-oriented people know. You future-oriented people know that your, your future hope, the, the thing that you're working toward or hoping for in the future, gives shape to how you live in the present. That's why future-oriented people are usually like they achieve a lot. Because they, they, whatever they're living for, hoping for in the future, is giving shape to their present. For example... Um, I was an exercise and sports science major uh, in, in my undergrad in college. Uh, I was very studious. My wife, on the other hand, was in nursing school at the time. Uh, we were dating and engaged. And um, because she had this hope of being a nurse in her future, she sacrificed a lot and endured nursing school in the present in order to become a nurse. Meanwhile, I was like going to a lab playing kickball. That's what I was doing for class. Uh, she's like suffering, studying for the NCLEX. Uh, I think that's what it's called, something like that. Um, another example. If your future hope, if you hope to retire by 60, that future hope for you is going to give shape to how you live in the present, right? You'll save, you'll invest wisely, you'll live moderately in the present so that you can retire by 60. Our, our future hope gives shape to our present living. And as Christians, we have a glorious future hope, and it ought to give shape to how we live in every way in the present. In other words, we ought to be future-oriented Christians. But I bet if we are honest, most of us don't think much about our future in Christ. In other words, it's not uh, it's not in, in, in the front. It's not coming. It's not in view out here. Maybe it's in the peripheral of our life. We think about it sometimes, but it's not what's driving our life. Why is this? Well, perhaps it's because you've never been taught the doctrine of glorification. Maybe it's because what you've been taught about the return of Christ uh, is weird and, and strange in times theology that you've learned and picked up along the way, uh, which by the way, we could leave that behind. I don't know if you saw what I did there, but, um, but we, we could, maybe that's kind of what you've picked up along the way. Maybe, maybe it's your image of heaven, that kind of this idea of heaven in your mind is kind of boring, like just souls floating around, maybe playing harps or in choir robes for all eternity, and just that picture is kind of boring to you, and so you don't think much about it. But I bet, most likely, I bet the reason that most of us don't think much about our future in Christ is because we are still chasing dreams and hopes in this life. Like there's a future in this life that we're still after. We are all, after all, products of American culture, aren't we? Right? The American dream, the American story. I mean, people are moving to this country because of this mantra, this hope in our culture that you can kind of determine your own destiny. You can write your own future. You can build the life that you want. 
And uh, whatever you, whatever you uh, desire for your future, you can go and get it. This is ingrained in us early on in our childhood. And so what happens is that we're off on this trajectory, off to college or off to work, whatever it might be, chasing the future, the dream job, the perfect spouse, the perfect family, the dream house, the desired lifestyle. And we just are off kind of this uh, as if our life is like a choose your own adventure novel. I don't know if you remember those in the 90s. And we're just like chasing this future that we want for ourselves. But here's the reality. Something begins to happen for every human being along the way. It happens to some of us earlier in our life than it happens to others. We start to bump up against the fallenness of life in this world. Do you know what I mean? We start to bump up against the reality that life in this world is a life uh, lived in a world of sin and death. We start to bump up against suffering. We're chasing our dreams and building our future, and then there is a diagnosis that comes. There's a death that happens. There's a betrayal. There's a business that goes belly up. It happens to some of us before it happens to others of us, but it will happen to all of us. We live in a life, in a world of sin and death. Life is fragile. The world is deeply broken. You see, if our lives are, are chasing and if we're living our lives hoping only in the things of this world, building a future hope in this world, we are nothing more than people building sandcastles on the beach. And soon enough, the tide of sin and death, the tide of suffering will come and will knock it over. This is the reality of the human condition. And our text today tells us about a better future to give our lives to, a future that is certain, a future that cannot fail, a future that the tide cannot come and touch. In fact, it's a future that will overcome the tide of sin and death, will wash it away for all time and eternity, a future that is incredibly bright and glorious. I want you to Look at what Paul does in this text. He roots us in the reality of present sufferings and calls us to live in the present in light of our glorious future. Look back at verse 16 and 17. Let's pick back up there. Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. What has been happening in our study of Romans 8? Paul's been talking about the spirit and how he gives life to us, this incredible Christian life, right? He's been talking about this life of freedom that the spirit gives us, no more shame and guilt, no condemnation, this life of newness that the spirit gives, putting to death our sin, this life of sonship that the spirit gives, this life of inheritance. In other words, you are heavenly trust fund babies in Christ. This is what he's been talking about. It's this amazing thing we looked at last week. And then it's like, as if the, the, the record scratches, provided that we suffer with him. He drips in a little dose of reality. Paul is reminding us that our sonship in Christ does not get us off the hook of suffering in this world. Are you with me? Paul is reminding us that becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you live your best life now, as some prosperity teachers will try and tell you. 
provided that we suffer with him, he says. The Christian life is not void of suffering. In fact, sometimes, and in some places, being a Christian will enhance your suffering. Jesus promised this. We live in a world of sin and death. The world is cursed. The world is full of thistles and thorns. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it wonderfully. He said it this way. He said, the moment that we enter into this world and we begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you will ever take. The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. This is the human condition. We are born into sin. It's not only is the principle of decay, as Lloyd-Jones puts it, not only is it in us, but it's all around us. I mean, don't you feel it? Um, I don't recommend that you watch cable news, but if you do watch cable news, don't you feel it? This principle of decay all around us? Look back at what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 20 through 23. He says, for the creation, he's talking about the, the material world, the created world, this world that we live in, the creation, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's a stunning verse. The creation is eagerly awaiting our receiving of our inheritance as sons. That's an incredible thought. Verse 22. For, the whole, uh, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, that's where it is like a down payment. It's like the, the spirit is our down payment of what is to come. Who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the creation itself, the material world, has been also been impacted by the fall. It's also subjected that, that, to futility. That word means frustrated or in bondage as a result of the curse, right? We need a Genesis 1 theology that tells us that God created a world that is good. God created human beings to live forever with God and his glorious creation. But we also need a Genesis 3 the theology that tells us that the problem with us is, the, is, is sin. It's the curse. The problem with the world is not uh, who's in office. That's not the problem of the world. The problem with the world is, uh, is that it's cursed. It's under the curse of sin and death. This is what he's saying. It's the creation is in need of rescue and redemption. He's saying our lives are groaning for glory. That thing that we're chasing when we set out on the American dream to build our own future, we're groaning for glory, for goodness, for wholeness. And he's saying that the creation is also groaning for redemption too. So in other words, we can't find what we're looking for in the creation. Why? Because it too is broken and busted and needs redemption. We don't need to just find new sand to build our sandcastles with. What Paul is pointing us here, he's pointing us to three things in this text. He's saying, because we live as fallen people in fallen bodies in a fallen world, we ought to expect suffering. So we ought not be blindsided by it. We ought to expect it. Number two, he's telling us that, but those who are in Christ and those who have the Holy Spirit, 
We are not alone in our suffering. Christ is with us in our suffering. Do you see that in verse 17? This is what he means, that we suffer with Christ. Christ is with us in our suffering. His spirit is, is in us. He's going to go on, and we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come, how the spirit helps us as sufferers awaiting redemption. And then the third thing that he tells us in this text is that our suffering, though, is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And once again, Romans 8 gives us a verse that we could build our entire life upon. What a verse. Paul says that glory is coming. It is going to be revealed to us. It's going to be glory is going to be unveiled, unwrapped, and delivered to you upon the return of Jesus Christ. What a thought. What a thought. He says that when it happens, when Christ returns, it's, go, it's going to make the, glo the glory that we're going to receive, it's going to make our sufferings in this world seem small. That's what Paul is saying. It's going to make your suffering seem small. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says this way. He says, our present sufferings are but light and momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And I want you to know something. When Paul says this, that the glory that is coming for us in Christ Jesus, it will make your present suffering seem small, he's not in any way dismissing or minimizing your suffering. I think this is key for us to understand this text. Listen, I've, I've been a pastor long enough I've been a pastor long enough to know that there are some of you who have been through some terrible, terrible things in your life. Um, there are some of you that have been through more suffering, uh, like exponential suffering than others. There are some of you that have been through terrible loss. You've experienced terrible loss in your life. Whether it be loss of a child, loss of a spouse, too early and too soon, uh, the loss of a marriage that had nothing to do with you. There are some of you that are living with deep, deep heartache, trauma. Some of you are living with chronic pain in your bodies. You see, Paul is not in any way trying to minimize these things, just brush them under the rug. He's been through it too. In fact, you can flip over to 2 Corinthians. If you want 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in your Bible, Paul actually gives us a sample of the sufferings he's experienced. He talks about how he's been beaten with rods and stoned, shipwrecked, left adrift at sea. That does not sound fun. He said he's been in danger, like all over the place. Toil and hardship, sleepless nights without food, living with daily pressure, living with deep anxiety, loneliness, and leadership. He's not in any way trying to minimize sufferings. He's, he's saying, listen, I've really thought about this, guys. He says, for I considered, I've really thought about the suffering that I've experienced. I've thought, is Jesus really worth it? 
Like, is he really worth it? Or should I just kind of slide back into life in this world? Do I keep on walking by faith? Is he really worth it? And Paul says that he's settled it. He's settled it. And he wants us to settle it, that Jesus really lived and he really died and he rose again and he's truly coming again. And when he does, oh, the glory that it will be forever and ever, Paul says, the glory it will be. So what will it be like? What is our future? What is coming for you if you are in Christ Jesus? Where is this all headed for you? Um, I want to unpack this a little bit. One thing that I want to say first is that there's a lot of bad theology around the return of Christ that exists. And so we would do good to actually shed a lot of that and just pay attention to the promises in the New Testament, right? In other words, the New Testament writers are not interested in giving you the particulars about the return of Christ. They're not. You know what they're interested in giving you? The promises, They're giving you the promises. There's zero, the New Testament writers spend zero time discussing timetables, debating signs, interpreting current events, zero time. Not interested in it. They're interested in you rooting your life in the promises of the return of Christ, the certainty of the return of Christ. By the way, the word, this might trip some of your wires. the word rapture is not even in the Bible, just so you know. The, the concept of the rapture uh, is not in historic Christianity. It's not. We can talk about that later if you want to talk about that later. Be, that'll be a fun conversation. They're not interested in the particulars. They want you to root your life in the promises. The promise that sin and suffering and evil will be no more, and that when Christ returns, he will usher you into eternal glory. Two aspects of the promise that are crystal clear in Romans 8. What are they? The first is that the earth itself, the earth will be glorified upon the return of Christ. We see this in 19 through 22, that the creation itself, the world that we live in, will be set free from the presence of sin. It will be unshackled from the presence of sin. Uh, It will be... um, freed from the bondage to corruption, Paul says in the text. And I want to be clear about this. God's future plan is not to blow up the earth. <laughs> um, that's not his plan. Uh, Genesis 1, God says that it's the, the earth is good. It's good. He's not going to destroy it or discard it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to restore it. He's going to unshackle it from sin and sin's effects. The earth will be renewed. One theologian said it this way. He says, there will be no more thorns or thistles, no more floods or droughts, no more deserts or uninhabited jungles, no more earthquakes or tornadoes, no more poisonous snakes, thank God, or bees that sting or mushrooms that kill. There will only be a productive earth. This is beautiful. There will only be a productive earth, an earth that will blossom and bloom abundantly for our enjoyment. This is where we're headed. Heaven will come to earth. Eden will be restored. The lion will lie down with the lamb. This is the promise. As Ephesians 1 says, God is uniting all things where? In heaven and on earth. Ephesians chapter 1. In Christ Jesus. And so the the world that we live in will be 
redeemed and renewed. The second promise that we're given in the New Testament that's crystal clear in this text is that our bodies will be glorified upon the return of Christ. That's an incredible thought, that these bodies that we live in will be renewed, restored, redeemed. In other words, uh, if your picture of heaven is your soul floating around in the sky, that's not a biblical picture of heaven. Christ, we will reign with Christ in the new creation. We, we were made body and soul for life in Genesis chapter 1. So our body is going to be restored and redeemed to full power and the full glory that it was originally created for. It will be unshackled from the curse of sin. You can make a note of 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. I preached on this text a couple of months ago. Paul tells us this, that these earthly bodies will be replaced with heavenly bodies. He says that what is sown and that is perishable will be raised as imperishable. That what is about our bodies that's weak will be raised in power and raised in glory and raised in a spiritual body. What a thought. I want you to imagine what this would be like. Um, I think this helps us. Uh, think about the, the resurrected Lord Jesus. Okay? Think about him. Think about his body. Was it a physical body? Yes. Did he eat fish? He ate fish with his disciples. Yes. Was it a glorious body? Yes. I'm just telling you what, this is the picture. Did he have scars still? Yes. Did he walk through an, a locked door? Yes. <laughs> this is the picture. What a thought of our physical bodies freed in every way from its limitations and its weakness and its wounds due to sin. What a thought. Jesus' body had this pecu pe peculiar glory to him. In ways, he was unrecognizable by his disciples, but in other ways, he was so familiar, right? There's some biblical scholars that think, that say that, that we will have this youthful renewal to our bodies in the new creation. That's a cool thought, isn't it? Like not like a childish, but uh, not, not, a, not a childish reality, but like a youthful strength and beauty. Maybe 33 is like the peak age. Maybe it is, you know? Like imagine you at 33, uh, like, that's the picture. What a thought. It's fun to imagine, isn't it? A life, a body with no more decay of death. Not only will there be glory to our bodies, we'll be raised to a glorious life, a Genesis 1 life, an Eden life, but there will be strength to our bodies. We will have power to do everything that God has gifted us to do in the new creation. Did you know that there was work before there was curse in Genesis 1? that God called Adam and Eve to work the creation. Now imagine work with all of your passion and your heart alive and full strength to do it, doing what you delight in for God's glory for all eternity. This is the picture, unhindered from any kind of weakness or ailment or handicap or limited capacity. This is a snapshot of your future. This is the promise of the scriptures. A glorified, renewed earth, bodies redeemed and restored, completely freed and cleansed from the presence of sin. This is where the gospel is taking you. This is where, this is your future. If you have claimed Christ as your savior, if you've crowned him as your king, this, brothers and sisters, ought to be our vision in every way. I, I wanna give you a few quotes 
that I thought, I came across that I thought were incredible. Uh, this is from Michael Goheen. He says, the whole Bible leads us to expect a glorious renewal of life on earth so that the age to come will be an endlessly thrilling adventure of living with God on the new earth. With his presence pervading every act, we shall be more fully human than we have ever been, liberated from sin, death, and all that hurts or harms. N.T. Wright says, why will we be given new bodies? He's talking about this passage. Paul's clear that we're gonna be given new bodies. Why will we be given new bodies? Well, according to the early Christians, the purpose of this new body will be to rule wisely over God's new world. Forget those images about lounging around playing harps. There will be work to do and we shall relish doing it. All the skills and talents we have put to God's service in this present life and perhaps even the interests and the likings that we've had to set aside due to conflict or vocation will be enhanced and ennobled and given back to us to be exercised to his glory in the new creation. Ray Ortland says this. He says, on that final day, as we step together into the new creation, you may turn to me and say, hey, Ray, I, I'm trying to remember, did we, did we call it cancer? What, what was it again? But we won't be able to remember. And so we'll say, oh, well, off to glory we go. What a promise. What a future. Paul says in Romans 8, 18, I consider the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is your future. And so I'm gonna ask you as we close, what would it look like for you, brothers and sisters, to begin to live today in the present in light of this future? in light of this reality that is coming to you? What would it look like for you to, to take your future in Christ out of the peripheral of your life and put it right here in the front in every way? Maybe take some of these other things and not that they're not important, they're still important, but you put them in the peripheral and you live for Christ and his return in every way. What would it look like for you? I, I think two quick things. I think first of all, if you are suffering today, putting your future in Christ right here in the front of your life, in the front of your vision, I think it will help you to suffer well. To suffer well. You know, this is one thing that Christians have up on non-Christians is that we can suffer well. We can suffer with great hope. The Bible is telling us that we can trust that our sufferings produce something. And we might not be able to see it, but God promises that he's using our sufferings for our good. We might not know it now, but we will see it at some point, even if it's in glory. He says in this text that suffering in this life is like the groaning pains of childbirth. Um, it's temporarily deeply painful, but it's producing life. That's what he tells us. It's producing life. Brothers and sisters, would you remember that Christ is over you? If you're suffering today, he's beside you, he's in you by his spirit. 
to help you in your suffering. We're going to talk more about this in two weeks when we get to the next part of the text. Satan will tempt you in your suffering to believe that God has abandoned you. How many of you have been there? He will tempt you to believe that God has abandoned you. And all you need to do is remind him that you've taken up your cross and follow Jesus. All you need to do is read Romans chapter 8 to him and tell him that he's a liar. That's all you need to do. You can suffer well. And finally, because our future in Christ is so glorious, we ought to steward our lives well. We can suffer well and we should steward well. Um, there's a, a, a British missionary uh, who worked closely with Hudson Taylor named C.T. Studd. You've maybe heard of him. He was a missionary in China and in India, a missionary in Africa. Um, he wrote a, po- a poem that's quite famous called Only One Life. Um, in fact, I'll share this poem with you this week, the full poem with you this week to read and even discuss in your gospel communities as you meet with your, with your gospel communities this week. But um, there's a story that, that goes that C.T. Studd was struggling on the mission field. Um, he was suffering. He was struggling. He was doubting. And that there were many times that he was tempted, like just to kind of go back to the comforts of the world, like life in the world. And so he wrote this poem to anchor himself in reality, to keep himself faithful. The final stanza of the poem goes this way. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Everything else is passing away. Everything else is passing away. Invest well, steward well, live into glory, live for the coming kingdom. Don't waste your life building sandcastles. Invest in the eternal. Live for glory. Give and serve and share and take risks for the kingdom. These are all things that we are free to do because of Christ who has died and who has risen and who is coming again. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God of all glory and God of all grace, We thank you for your word. It is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you for how it speaks to us and reorients our life and turns us around and renews our mind. Thank you what a gift your word is. Thank you for the privilege of gathering with the church to remember the truth, to learn the truth, to sing the truth. As we enter into a time of response, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw near to us in this time. As we come to the table to receive the Lord's Supper, would you nourish our faith? As we sing and as we respond and as we pray in the next few moments, would you minister to us? Most of all, we pray, Father, that you would be glorified in us and through us in this time and in this place. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.